0: All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> this isn't the Matthew McConaughey sermon. All right, all right, all right. No, um, <laughs> we have all these on the community table throughout so the room. They're four by six cards. And during this Reason for God series, you guys keep asking me questions. And so I tell you, write them down, and we'll answer them at some point in a message. But none of you grab a – you just come and grab me and be like, i got, I got a question. And it's like I cannot give you uh, – hour-long dissertation in five minutes about the answer to your question. It's like, oh, you didn't answer the whole thing. Like, write it down. I, after first service, comes up come and goes, oh, I got a question, and I'm all, write it down! No one isn't! <laughs> it's what it's there for. And we'll come back some point and answer. And, and, I, and if it's really important, I will answer right there as well. But if you have a good question, write it down, especially if something sparks in the Reason for God series. Because if you have a question, I'm sure other people do as well. So write it down. Throw it in the basket at the Welcome Center. If you can't find the basket at the Welcome Center, just throw it in one of those offering boxes on the side. Say, here's my offering. Here's my question. Answer this. And they'll be like, okay, great. Uh, the second thing I have is... Uh, Christmas is coming up kind of right around the corner. And if you are someone who at some point in your life is like, I need a drum set. And so you bought a drum set and just sits in your garage because you realize you don't know what in the world to do with a drum set, but you got one. Uh, I need a couple floor toms. So if you have one of those drum sets and you have a, like a floor tom that you want to let us borrow for about a month. Uh, that would be great. Come and talk to me afterwards. I'll get a hold of you. We'll grab it. and No one's going to break it or anything, but I do need it for about a month. So if you have one, let me know. It's great. Uh, I also, if you have one of these, um, anybody ever seen like Imagine Dragons when they do a concert show? They, the guy has that big old round bass drum. He's all
1: boom, boom, boom.
0: I want one of those. Okay. If, you, if you happen to be like, oh, one year I asked my wife for Christmas to get me a big old bass drum I could beat on, and they did, let me know. So I'd really like to use it. Third, third, you have one? I will be so impressed, by the way. And very excited because we will use it on Christmas Eve. Uh, third thing is I want to, I'm not going to show you the picture yet, but I want to introduce you to a guy named Corey Morris. Uh, we have hired somebody to uh, be our high school program director now at Elmett, so we actually have somebody that's doing that for high school kids, so it's great. Uh, Corey's a great guy, got a great heart, but I wanted to preface that before I showed you the picture because it's really going to make him go down in your estimation. Here's the picture. He's got a cat. It's like, so I had to preface it with all, the, with all the other stuff before I showed you the picture with a cat. but This is Corey. It's his wife, Jadine. If you see them around, uh, welcome them, love on them, hug them awkwardly long. It'll be great. Let him know he's arrived. <laughs> So, there you go. Say so, hi to Corey if you see him around here. Uh, so, uh, if we are in this series called The Reason for God, and if you are new, uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes that look like this on all the communion tables throughout the room. There's some um, little bit of notes and the questions go deeper in what we talk about in the messages. Because today I'm actually putting two of the chapters of the book together and kind of paralleling and running alongside of it to help you get the idea of cross and resurrection. And so if you grab one of these, you can kind of go through this with the sermon. Uh, we are encouraging you this week, if you have the Reason for God book, to read chapter 12 and 13. It, it is Thanksgiving, it's an extra long week, so you have the extra time to do it. So you, you can do it. I, I think you can. Uh, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events, and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. I want you stand with me for the reading of God's word. And this is Isaiah chapter 64 verse 5. And it says, "You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you and your ways. Behold, you are angry, and we sin. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved?" And we're going to kind of talk about that today. Uh, let's pray. Father, this morning I asked that you would teach us what it means to be a people who understand salvation and grace and your anger at sin and your love for us as your people and how all these things come together and that that would so infuse who we are we begin to live out our lives differently that would bring you great glory as we live in joy and the world begins to change because of how your people love and interact with those around them that the world would be different because you have placed us in it as your hands and feet and we would live out in ways that show how good you are. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so as I was saying this Uh, We're almost done with our series called The Reason for God. We have this week and next week and then we are done. Uh, The Reason for God is a series based out of again Tim Keller's book called The Reason for God and it's about all the ways that we can really trust the scriptures and the things that have been handed down to us and stuff like that. We spend a lot of time eight weeks to be exact looking at objections to the faith. You know like what is faith and what is trust and and how's the Bible and archaeology work and the Bible and science and all these questions. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And and we brought all that together kind of with a historical evidence, and now we 're kind of moving into this section of it like the last four weeks of our series it's the last ch- six chapters in the book but it 's about how to actually uh, look at all of that in light of what it means doctrinally for us as a people theologically to understand what that actually means and make sense of the world in which we live today today we 're going to look at the very light hearted topics of god 's anger and sin, and the cross, and the resurrection, and bring this together, and if you've never had any kind of theological framework, today might actually help you to understand in some practical ways, I think, what God's anger, and sin, and cross, and resurrection all kind of look like together, but it's going to be kind of a trek to get where we're going. Uh, Again, so as we talk about cross, and resurrection, I think it's very important for us to understand in light of our current world, and the things that we see what God is calling us into as a people, and this, if you are going to an agape meal, it will actually go right into your agape meal, because we handed things out to the people there to actually read a couple things and kind of discuss this a little bit more there. If you have a Bible, open to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah 64. Uh, a lot of times, people will equate like the cross and sin with God's anger, and that's and that is good because sin makes God angry. But sometimes we think when God gets angry, it's like a parent who has lost control over their kids and they don't know what to do. So they lose control over their rationality and goes crazy. Like if you have a kid and you're and he goes kind of nuts, and you're like, Oh, where's I need to get that kid? And like we're like God thinking God's walking around going, where did I leave those lightning bolts? I gotta smack somebody with those things. We think God gets kind of nutty like that. One of my favorite theologians of all time is a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards wrote a lot of great stuff, had a lot of great sermons, but the one he's remembered for is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's like, why that one? Because it talks about God being angry. Uh, so if you look at Isaiah chapter 64, uh, the same chapter I had you stand for, this is just a couple of verses later. Isaiah 64 verse 9. He says, Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not in iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. And we read that and it sounds like Isaiah is kind of pleading with God. Oh God, please don't be so mad. Oh God, uh..." we misunderstand his words because we see God's anger in the Bible as being a certain way that I don't think it is all the time. We always think, why is God so mad? Well, there's a big difference between anger and madness. And I've talked to you about this a little bit before. Madness is, you you commit people to an insane asylum, right, because they're mad. Madness is uncontrollable. It makes you crazy and irrational. and our What in the World series last year, I talked about genocide in the Old Testament. And I talked about God being angry in that, but it's not usually what we think of. The difference between God's anger and human anger is shown in the scriptures over and over because God's anger results in things that are very different than what our anger results in. Our anger results in trying to destroy and hurt other people. God's anger ultimately results in our salvation. And so we cannot attribute the way God gets angry to the way we get angry because when we get angry, we typically get. Mad. We enter a place called madness. Uh, when you get angry, your muscles will clench, your blood pressure rises, your heart rate accelerates, your neurotransmitters in your brain, they start to fire differently. Anger for us is essentially something your body will respond to and do, and the angrier we get, the more it takes us over, and the more mad we become. I, I love the movie The Water Boy, because it's exactly true. The Abdullah Abla Gada, and he runs around, and he tackles people, and punches people, and runs through walls, and stuff like that. When we get too mad, we become incapable of rational thought. If you are married, uh, and, and imagine uh, you got in a fight with your spouse. I know it's, it's hard to imagine, but imagine that happens, right? And then, and then you get to a place where maybe the anger starts coming, and you start to yell, and it gets louder and louder. Has that ever resolved itself in a good way when it got past a certain point? No, because we get to a place, and it's, it's why I tell people, when you get in a fight and it gets too that, walk away. Walk away, and then when it comes down, come back, because nothing ever gets solved when the volume hits 11. Okay, just walk away and, and then come back. The scriptures want us to remember, though, that God is not like us. God does not get angry like we do. In Numbers 23, verse 19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? The scriptures teach that God himself is perfect. God does not sin like us, but God is also a spirit. And that means God cannot lose it the way that we do. God can't melt down. His heart doesn't race. His blood pressure doesn't rise. For God, anger is not madness. It never becomes that. Humanly speaking, again, anger is this bodily experience, but it's not so with God. So what is anger like for God? What what does that look like? One of the main Hebrew words used for anger in the Old Testament is this word called af. Af, and it means nose. It's the, uh, it's like flaring of your nostrils when you get angry. You're like, do that right now. Just oh, it makes you mad doing it, right? Oh, yeah, that's, that's what I feel like. It, that, that's what it refers to. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And so when this here talks about slow to anger, that literally translates as long-nosed. It takes a long time for your nostrils to flare and for that to get through there. God is called slow to anger. It is so central to who he is, it is actually part of his name. In Exodus 34, 6, God shows himself to this guy named Moses, and God explains who he is. And this is what God says: the Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That phrase slow to anger is used seven times in the Old Testament to refer to God and it's always paired with abounding and steadfast love because that's who God is. God is not mean. He's not irritable. God doesn't fly off the handle. It's important when we read the Bible to understand who God is because it's going to have us see what God says and when he says things, what it actually means and that the Bible was written by intelligent people, at least as intelligent as we are, and they believed that God was merciful and consistent, that God could get anger, but God was also full of love. God never got Mad, quote unquote. And so God's anger, what it does is it comes about because of this thing we talked about two weeks ago in this series, this thing called sin. I took a whole sermon just to describe and talk about what sin was. God gets angry because sin destroys our lives. It makes us destroy one another and the creation He calls us to live within. One Bible dictionary talks about God's anger like this. He says, It is a rather personal quality without which God would cease to be fully righteous, and His love would degenerate into sentimentality. His wrath, however, even though like His love, it has to be described in human language. It is not wayward, fitful, or spasmodic, as human anger always is. It is as permanent and consistent an element in His nature as is is his love. And so Jonathan Edwards, 1781, writes this sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was actually in my eighth grade textbook in public school. You can imagine that. And the discussion, though, in public school was basically how these people are superstitious and God doesn't really exist, so don't worry about these things. That, that's all kind of was. But we have to understand why God is real and true and why Jonathan Edwards wrote something like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The, the reason the word sin is so prominent in the Bible is it's terrible. It destroys us. And yet we are a people who love it. We are constantly running after the things that God says don't run after. And that makes God angry because God loves us. We have lost the connection with God's anger and wrath over sin today, and that's a bad thing. Keller writes this. He says, you need an angry God. You need in your mind and in your heart a God who gets angry at sin. You need an angry God to live with hope. You need an angry God to live with humility. You need an angry God to know how loved you actually are. See, when you properly understand the word anger, that might come into a little more focus. When we cease to understand what sin is and what sin does and why it makes God angry, we can diminish the cross and what Jesus did to rescue and save us. In Isaiah chapter 40 and onward, there's words are written down by a nation who's facing exile and injustice. Their capital city, Jerusalem, has been torn down. Their own children have been slaughtered. The victors came in. They took children. They bashed their skulls against rocks to kill them. These people are being led away into captivity and chains. In Isaiah 46, they asked God to come down and judge the injustice. It says in chapter 46, verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze. Then it goes on and it says, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake. What they're saying is, if you, God, came down in your justice and all of that, if you went after our oppressors and perpetrators of injustice, they would be like dust before you. And I think it's impossible to live in a world today like we have that is full of injustice and full of pain unless you believe in a God who gets angry at injustice and pain and sin. Our problem is like the Israelites, we always assume that the oppressors are never us. We always assume it is somebody else. The Israelites, they started to build their country on the back of slaves, they were once slaves. And they started to build their country on slaves. And so when God brings judgment to wake them up, they're like, oh, these are the oppressors. No, they were the oppressors as well. See, when th- this always goes to how we see things in our world today. When we mess up, we are a people who want mercy. Imagine you're driving down the road in your car. Uh, you're texting on your phone, fiddling with the knobs, trying to smack your kids in the back seat because they won't shut up or whatever, right? And you're trying to do doing all this, and all of a sudden you kind of you hit or slam into the car in front of you because you weren't, weren't paying attention. One of your first thoughts is, if it's never happened to you, I'll help you out, okay? Uh, one of your first thoughts when that happens, because it's happened to me, uh, is, is I hope it's not that bad, right? And then, and then if it is really bad, you hope, oh, God, please let the car be a beater. Right? And then if the car it isn't a beater, you start praying, God, please let them say it's okay, it's no big deal, and then I can go. What we want when we mess up is we want mercy. But if you're sitting at a stoplight and someone comes up and hits you because they were distracted or fiddling with their knobs or texting on the phone or a bad driver, you know what we want? We want all the money their insurance company has. That's what we want. Someone's going to pay for my 1987 Deluxe Jugo hatchback. It's easily worth a million dollars or more right? Oh, my neck. I can't look. And if you don't get all the money the insurance company has, you hop on Facebook and you start writing all these horrible things about the person that hit you and all of your friends jump on and go, yeah, they're terrible. I don't know who they are, but yeah, you're right. You know, all, all this. Point, Keller points out that most of the wrongs done to others and us, it cannot always be merely assessed in economic terms because it robs us. or We rob others of innocence, reputation, happiness, opportunity, and things like that. He talks about how forgiveness, always requires a cost. If you hit somebody's car, and they actually say, I forgive you, you can go, and they let you go without the cop showing up and handing out tickets and things like that, there is still a cost to be carried. And at that point, it is actually absorbed by the person that you hit. If uh, you declared bankruptcy, and sometimes it's probably necessary, but some people think I declare bankruptcy and all all the debt just goes away. It doesn't. Somebody else actually has to absorb that debt. We have a lot of social programs in our country, and and I think some of them are good, Uh, but a lot of times people, when they sit in those social programs too long, they think it's free money, and the government just hands out free money. The government doesn't have money of its own, right? The government doesn't produce. The government takes money from people and hands it to other people. There is always a cost to be carried. There is always something that's out there where somebody carries the cost of a certain thing, and the reason we get so mad or hurt when someone hurts us in a way is that we know deep inside there's a debt that has actually been incurred. And if someone hurts or offends us in some way, you feel that rub across your heart. You feel the rub across your spirit that everything's not okay. And even sometimes if somebody says, oh, I'm really sorry, you know there's still a debt there. Like again, if you're married and you get in a fight with your spouse and you get angry at them, there's this outstanding debt in your heart somewhere. And they may even say, I'm sorry to you. But many times that's not good enough because you hurt and so you want them to hurt as well. The pain's so deep. And when that happens, there's only two things you can do with that debt. Number one is you can withhold relationship and initiate or passive progressively wish for some pain in their life that makes you feel better. Oh, they will get theirs. It's like when you watch a movie, right? You always want the bad guy to really get it in the end. It's got to be a slow death, not a fast one, so he really feels it because we all feel that way. We want to be appeased when someone hurts us. And so you can yell at someone else, confront them, and go and tell others about how much of a jerk they actually are until you feel the person you are mad at is paying off their debt. There's a problem with that, though. The more you live that way, the harder and colder your own life and heart becomes. The second thing you can do is an option called forgiveness. And forgiveness doesn't mean you let people get away with abuse, but it does mean that you start to want the best for them. You pray for them, that they would actually come to know and walk with with God. When When you talk to them, you don't lash out. And sometimes that can really be agony. But it means in the end you're going to suffer the original hurt and let go of the consolation of inflicting the same back on someone else. You absorb the debt. You take it on yourself. And that's a small microcosm of what the gospel is because all of our sins were laid upon Jesus. We think we're amazing if we do it once. Jesus did it for all of our sin everywhere all the time. Keller says it's like dying a little death when you forgive. He says, but in the end that death leads to resurrection and new life in relationships. When we want vengeance on people, it is typically not motivated by the best of good intentions, right? It's usually motivated by ill will. Sometimes when we say, oh, I just want them to be held accountable, that's a way of saying my true desire is to hurt them because they hurt me. We all have this instinct in us that if someone hurts me, I will hurt them back. And the pain that we experience always seems worse than whatever we give to someone else back. And studies have actually been done on this. They, they bring people together. They put, I don't know, diodes or whatever science stuff, on people's fingers, and they, and they have them sit down, one across from another, and they say, okay, now, inflict some pain, squeeze at the other person's finger until you inflict some pain, and then they do that, and then they turn around and they go, okay, now we want you to inflict back on that other person the exact same amount of pressure they put on your finger. You know what they found when I do these tests? Always, 100% of the time, we always inflict more pain back than we received. 100% of the time. What that is, I like to call that an I plus a little something extra for an I. Okay, we call that. But this is important when we understand and we say things like, why did Jesus go to the cross? Why couldn't God just forgive? You have to understand that forgiveness, uh, it's, it's serious when evil is present and someone always bears the cost of that forgiveness. Again, forgiveness means bearing the cost yourself. When Jesus dies, God placed all the ways that we have wronged him and others on Jesus at the moment of the cross. We cannot pay that off. Even for eternity, we never pay that off because the debt was too big. And this is why Jesus, the only one who could pay the debt, actually paid it for us. Killer quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer as saying, Everyone who forgives someone bears the other's sins. In Christian doctrine, Jesus is God, so God did not, against Jesus' will, force Jesus to go to the cross. At the cross, God himself absorbed our debt and our pain upon himself. God is not like other gods of other religions who say, I want your blood to be appeased. Our God becomes a human, sheds his own blood to honor moral justice so he can destroy sin without destroying us. The cross is the greatest example of God's sacrificial love. Jesus' death is more than an example, though. It was necessary to rescue. Why did Jesus die? Because there was a debt that needed to be paid, and God himself was the only one who could pay it. Back in the book of Ruth, I told you that God is holy, right, true, full of grace. That God is concerned not just with love, but also justice, both. And if you think about this intellectually, if God wanted love without justice or justice without love, he would never have to go to the cross. It would have never had to happen. Because if God wanted justice without love, he would have just killed us all and said, Man, I'm done. (laughs) Over, I'll start over, over here, right? That's all he had to do. What if he wanted love without justice? Couldn't he just wink and nod at sin and and walk away from it? No, because in true love, true love always comes with justice involved in it. And if God really loves us, he has to do something about the evil we commit. So what does he do? Jesus goes to the cross to show evil needed to be punished, yet provide a way for it to be overcome in us. Keller uh, quotes John Stott as saying, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In a real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? Our God is not immune to it. Our God suffers with us. And again, so often we overlook sin as not being that serious. We shrug it off like it's not a big deal. But it is a big deal. Jesus died on the cross. And that should show you how serious sin actually is. I mean, most Christians today, we don't understand a a lot of theology or why Jesus had to die because I think a lot of people are not that realistic about the nature of sin. But think about this. I talked about, you know, offering forgiveness and incurring that debt. When we even do that in our own lives, we start to get a little prideful. Oh, I forgave that debt. They should notice how I forgave that debt. They should really be appreciative that I forgave that debt that they had against me. Oh my! And then we start to get mad because they don't appreciate how you forgave the debt. And, And then you get... It just shows you what sin does in us. Jesus dying on the cross proves that sin and selfishness in the human heart is much more serious than anybody thinks it is. Jesus dying on the cross shows God takes sin seriously because he cares about justice and love both. Keller writes this. uh, Jesus dying on the cross so we can be forgiven shows at the same moment he hates evil and yet he will overcome it in us. Why does God get angry? God gets angry because of his love. Because he loves us. Because he cares. God gets angry at sin because we are his children. We are the clay. He is the potter. That's how the Bible talks about it. The Bible teaches us God's love is the cause of his anger. Not madness. Not madness. Isaiah 64 doesn't say, God, you shouldn't be angry. It says, please don't be angry forever. Because God is our father means as a father he can be angry at the right things. Uh, hopefully you had a father at some point who was not always just mad, but maybe sometimes got angry at the right things. Because God is our father, he can get angry angry. C.S. Lewis says in the book, The Problem of Pain, he says, you ask for a loving God. Well, you have one. The great Lord of terrible aspect loves you, not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels somehow responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds, persistent as the artist's love for her work, a father's love for a child, inexorable and exacting as a man's love for his wife. And this is why C.S. Lewis says that love is not the opposite of hate or, uh, or anger. He says the opposite of love is indifference, where you just don't care about anything. And that God cares because he loves. And that love makes him angry at sin and how it destroys us. God sees how we treat each other. God sees how we live these self-focused lives that never think about him and our decisions. And we're always just looking at ourselves and how sin continues to destroy us. God's love is the cause of his anger. But Lewis then points out and says that God's love is not just the cause of his anger. He says God's love is also the satisfaction of his anger. Uh, Keller has this great quote. It's not in the book, The Reason for God, so sorry. Uh, But this is what he says. Only if the cross happened can he be a God of furious love and loving fury all at once. Jesus Christ is a judge who was judged. Jesus Christ took all the anger, all the wrath for all the injustice. So when you believe in him, there is nothing left for you. And this is how we as a people can begin to make sense of the world and all of our relationships with anger and sin and love and hope and grace and restoration and redemption, what God has done to rescue us. Open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 5. Psalm chapter 5. If you want peace restored in your marriage, you must first understand that Jesus paid for the sins of your spouse just as much as they paid for yours. If you have a neighbor that drives you nuts... You must understand in order to a relationship that Jesus died for your neighbor's sins just as much as he died for yours. If you have a coworker who is never doing their work and you're just like, oh, if you ever want to have a relationship, you must understand that Jesus died for their sins just as much as he died for yours. Every slight you have ever felt against someone else, every injustice Jesus took upon himself because ultimately in the end our sins were first and foremost against God himself. In the Old Testament, when King David commits adultery, he has the woman's husband killed. He runs from his sin. He denies it. And when God breaks through, this is what he says. Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. He says, For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, David knows he sinned against Bathsheba. He sins against her husband and his nation. But he realized, first and foremost, his sin was against God himself. And this is a place that we must come to realize the same thing so we can start to offer grace and forgiveness to those around us as well. We cease to operate in madness, all right? And we begin to understand proper anger, where it's supposed to be directed. Only understand the cross will bring any real type of lasting peace in any of our relationships. Now, put your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, Romans 5. What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how this then relates to the resurrection. The cross and the resurrection go hand in hand. You talk to a lot of Christians, you say, tell me about Jesus. He died on the cross for my sins. If you say, what's the resurrection? They're like, I don't know. Okay, So I'm going to kind of give you a little bit about that. Uh, The beauty of the cross is that Jesus just didn't die. He actually rose from the dead at the resurrection. Uh, Romans 5, verse 10, this is what it says. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, there's the cross, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. That's resurrection. That's new life. The cross and the resurrection are always meant to go hand in hand. And the reason for God's spirit is we spent a little bit of time you know, talking about the historical evidence for the resurrection and things like that. So let me talk to you about the theological or doctrinal reason of the resurrection, especially as it relates to the cross and, and the sin. Uh, when Jesus resurrects, we are told he ascended into heaven, right? Now, some people go, oh, well, where is that? Where, where did he go? Like we assume he went into outer space and he's living on the moon or something like that. Like, oh, he must be out there somewhere. <laughs> Believe me, a Russian cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin thought he was looking for God in outer space. He must be just hanging out there because he ascended. like got so high and went, this is as far as the helium goes. I guess i got to stay here. You know, it, it, we have this weird view that when he, it says he resurrected and ascended, it doesn't mean he went to live in another part of the universe. It means he has a different relationship to the universe. Uh, Luke twenty five fifty one says, while he blessed them, that's Jesus, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Again, that's not a different place that what that is is a different relationship to the universe. Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And he died and rose so that sin was defeated for us and in us. And at the resurrection he ascends so his power is now given to all of us in all places. Uh, imagine Jesus rose from the dead, and he just ascended and hanging out in, in the clouds somewhere. He built a cloud city to go up and find Jesus in the clouds because he's hanging out there like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. I went up and whatever, right? And, and so he's set up like at one time in one space, sets up an earthly kingdom like his disciples wanted and expected. He'd be stuck in one spot in one place, and we'd only get to talk to him one at a time. I mean, you think the DMV's bad? Take a number to go see Jesus, Right? Oh, I'm number two million five hundred and thirty five. What am I oh, I'll see you in ten years. I'll go hang out over there in those chairs. That'd be terrible, right? The the scriptures try to get us to understand that he has stepped out of space and time. He's not hanging out in the heavens. He goes to heaven. This is why the scriptures say things like he is seated on the throne. That's the throne of the universe, the world, everything that we know. He can take everything he ever said or ever did and make it applicable to us. He is our shepherd and our substitute and our mediator and our sacrifice. He now has a relationship where he can take all the benefits that he did and accomplished at the cross and make it available to everyone everywhere. We tend too often to be like this woman named Mary, who after the resurrection, Jesus rises from the grave, she sees him, and she grabs on him and hangs on to him. She is not going to let him go. And this is what Jesus says to her in John 20, verse 17. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. The literal rendering is there is I am ascending to the Father. But she grabs on him. I don't want to let you go. I see who you are. I need you to stay here. Oh, no, Jesus. And she hangs on to him. And what Jesus says is not, I'm patient zero, don't touch me, you might explode. What he says is, Mary, you don't understand. You have to let go because I am ascending. And when I am ascending, you are never going to lose me again. If I stayed here, I'd be stuck in one spot and one place at one time. But when I ascend, no one can take me from you. They can lock you up and chain you in a dungeon and throw you to lions. They can write all kinds of books that say, I don't even exist. But they will never keep me from you. When I ascend, all that I have done is going to be loose to the entire world. Resurrection was not about Jesus going to some other place. He goes to heaven, so what he did was brought to the entire world. And this is also how the nature of resurrection tells us that we are invited to take part in resurrection ourselves today, right now. The cross and resurrection are about real life rooted here and now. It's about the understanding of anger at sin and God's love for us, forgiveness and hope and grace and all these things coming together. Peter says in 1 Peter one three, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope hope it is not that jesus died and got laid to tomb and he rotted there we have a living hope because he rose from the grave and he takes all of that and makes it available to us the hope comes from who god is his anger at sin not madness but proper anger the cross and the resurrection are we are all invited into i think for us to properly get and understand god's love for us We have to understand that God gives us His strength, and He takes our weaknesses upon Himself. He gives us His life. Jesus receives our sin and death. This is why we call it substitution. Substitution. Keller quotes John Stott again as saying this, The essence of sin is we humans substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting Himself for us. We put ourselves where God deserved to be. God puts Himself where we deserve to be. And this is why... Cross, resurrection, anger at sin, grace. This is why we call it grace. God gives us as a people what we don't deserve, His forgiveness. He bears the cost Himself. And I think that if we want to be a people who properly reflect Him in this world and live out in ways that make sense of everything that happens, we have to begin to offer that same forgiveness to other people as well because we have first received it. So we begin to give it away. I think when we begin to do that and understand what God has done, it's going to lead to places in our lives of great faithfulness and who he is and great thankfulness for what he has done. I mean, Thanksgiving's this week. What do you got to be thankful for? Even if you got a everything's falling apart in your life, you have the grace of God that has been extended to you so you can have a relationship with him again. God has stepped into our mess and rescued us. God has borne the debt of our sin upon himself so we no longer have to bear it. It's beautiful. Well, we are called in the scriptures that says Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Well, that means we live out in this world in a way that reflects who he is. And that means that we are a people who understand the great forgiveness we have received. And we begin to forgive others as well around us. It changes how we do everything. This is why we come to communion. Communion is the place where we remember what God has done to rescue us. You break the cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Because God incurred the debt himself. We are a people who kept just running into the back of his car. (laughs) And God is the one that's like, I'm going to forgive you. And I mean, God says, God just didn't say you can go. God says, go and sin no more and things like that. And I I will take your sin upon myself and I will restore and redeem you into relationship with me. These are all the wonderful things that, that God does. And this is what we remember at communion, that all of the debt that not just we, but everyone has incurred is laid upon the person of Christ at the moment of the cross. And it is a beautiful way to understand forgiveness. Our debt laid upon him, his grace given to us, and us getting to live out and walk in new life. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to communion. There's going to be some deacons in the back, and if you need prayer... Uh, maybe you're in a place today where you have this this burden of debt. You're feeling like it's laying upon your shoulders, and you could and you know, if I walk into a church, God's going to strike me with lightning or something like that. Guys, all those things are words because we don't understand God's real anger comes out of His love for us, and that He calls us back into relationship with Him, and He wants us to be in places with other believers, and more importantly, relationship with Himself. And so He does everything to bring us back in again because He is good. And I would encourage you, if if you have something hanging over you or your heart or your soul or your life today that's heavy on your spirit, that you would pray with them and have them begin to be able to talk to you about the good news of the gospel, God's good news of his rescue of us. It's actually uh, interesting. We're going to do this song in just a minute. And there's all kinds of controversy around this song because it's called Reckless Love. and, And they're like, God's love isn't reckless, which is totally true. God's love isn't reckless. God's love is purposeful. But when we look at what God does in his love, it looks reckless to us. He leaves the 99 to chase down the one. God wants us as big a knuckleheads as we are. Jesus goes to the cross in, in a, as a sinful person and he never sinned. And he goes to the cross for us to rescue and pay that debt. That's, I think, in our vernacular, reckless. But it's, God is never reckless. And so I think these things can kind of go hand in hand in how we look at it. Because of God's great love God gets angry at sin, but that same love leads him to rescue and save us at the same time. There's offering boxes next to all the doors we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We do not pass the plate. It's a response to what God has done. Take some sermon notes. Grab some food that's outside. If you're not going to an agape, why not? Second thing is, <laughs> second thing is uh, if you don't, grab some notes and maybe meet with somebody this week and talk to those things. You know, how have you thought about God's anger in the past and what makes God's angry and, and, and how God comes to a place where that anger results in our salvation and how all these things kind of begin to come together. I think it's really important for us to understand the goodness of who he is and the reason God gets angry and the things that he does to bring us back into relationship again. So I would encourage you to go to an agape email today. Uh, if you haven't signed up, please do so. Someone will invite you. And uh, let's be a people who remember God's steadfast love and faithfulness to us. Uh, Mike Harmon, one of our pastors, is going to come and pray for us so I can strap on a guitar and not be all awkward. I guess I've just made it awkward. So.
1: <laughs> Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit that lives within us and brings us times like this morning, uh, rare moments of clarity. Clarity where we see ourselves in the light of your goodness and grace. Rare moments where we see um, how lost we really are. And when we discover that we're lost, what do we do? Do we begin to look for a way back to you? Do we begin to try to clean up our act that we can get close to you again? Or do we turn to you to the majesty of grace and wonder of the cross, do we find hope and comfort in your anger? That you are angry how sin has destroyed us, how sin has made us lost, how sin has brought death into our lives, that we find ourselves separated from you, separated from one another, lost. Lord, will we find comfort in the grace you provide us, Jesus, who suffered in our place, who assuages our guilt and takes our hurt. Lord, we react to sin that we do with guilt or the sin done against us with hurt that turns to anger. And Jesus took both. He takes our guilt. He takes our hurt. That we might be free from the penalty and the effects of sin. God, may we find great hope in that. Hope for how we live in our families. Hope for how we live in our neighborhoods and where we work. That when we sin, Lord, we we have peace in you. Freedom from guilt and debt. When we've been hurt and are angry for being sinned against, we have hope that you took that also to the cross. And you rose from the dead to conquer the pain, the shame, and the guilt, and the debt that we carry, that we might live free as new creations. God, how do we respond to that except to allow you to to live through us in kind, that we would cancel the debt that others have incurred against us, that we would allow you to heal our hurts, that we might not. Extract from others. Father, you're so good. We revel in the mercy and in the grace that's revealed on the cross and in the power of the resurrection to actually free us, that we might live because Jesus, you live. Thank you for your goodness. In your name, amen.